Theonauts episode number 20. The one where we slay giants. The Theonauts podcast. Christian news from around the globe. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. It is the glory of God to conceal a thing, but the honor of kings is to search out a matter. Explore the vast reaches of God's word. Hello, all you Theo watchers out there. (laughs) I hope you're seeing a good show. (laughs) (laughs) I'm David Gaddy. I'm Jeremiah Orr. And together we are the the Theo Knots. So that'll make more sense as we get into the show here. That's right. uh, right. We're going to talk about watchers and what that is all about. (laughs) Super excited about that, man. Yes. Well, this is episode number 20, man. It's It's a a milestone. It's a milestone. That's what you were going to say. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's kind of special. So on three, one, two... It's a, it's a milestone. milestone. Very good, very good. Very good. Where's my celebratory cupcake? I don't yeah, see it here. I wrote a book. <laughs> there you go. That's great. That's great. Thanks, Pat. Yeah. We needed man. that. So, so how's everything going there, Jeremiah? Oh, man, fat and happy. Awesome, fat and happy. Awesome. I had a great lunch at Buffalo Wild Wings with my pastor just a few minutes ago. Oh, good deal. Yeah, so if I fall asleep on you, just, uh, you know, poke me, wake me up, and and we'll keep going. Too many uh, hot wings. Too many hot wings. I can't get enough of that place. The waitress knows me by name. It's awesome. Really? Hey, Jeremiah, you want the usual? Yeah, I want the usual. <laughs> I don't care about my figure. Give it to me. <laughs> wow, that's How awesome. about you, David? How was your week? Oh, very, very good. Hey, I finally did my uh, my ALS ice bucket challenge. Yeah, awesome. <laughs> Christina and I are doing ours tonight. Oh, are you really? Yeah, together. Yeah. It'll be fun. So... What do you think about the whole ALS ice bucket thing? Oh, it's funny you should ask. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I just... <laughs> we weren't prepared at all to talk about that. <laughs> no, I recently, um, I recently just posted a blog article about it at, on my website, davidgaddy.com. Yeah. Um, because there's this trend that's kind of bugged me a little bit about, about the ALS ice bucket challenge. And um, that is the re- Christian response to it. It seems like I'm seeing, like every day that this thing gets more and more viral, um, I'm seeing more and more negative comments sure. about it. And almost all these negative comments seem to be coming from fellow Christians. Mm. And I just find that very interesting that, you know... Um, isn't that interesting, though? I mean, we've been negative commenting stuff since the dawn of the dawn of the ice age. I think, <laughs> seriously, come on, guys. <laughs> well, and I think we, we we beat each other up and yeah. we we nitpick things, and you know, and I understand some of the concerns, but it's almost a stretch in in many cases. Like uh, one of the big concerns is that um, you're wasting clean water. Yeah, I've heard okay. That you're trying to trying to to raise funds for a good cause and you're dumping clean water on yourself. And I, I get that. I understand what you're saying. But the flip side of that is the average American uh, household uses about 100 gallons of water right. a day. Right. Right. Okay? You use <laughs> Every about, time you flush the toilet. <laughs> we take a dump in clean water. Exactly. And then we flush it. We, we, we take these showers that five, ten minutes long of a five-minute shower uses 10 to 25 gallons of clean water. Right. So 
I don't really have a problem with people having an issue with this. Right. My question is, what are you doing about it at home? Yeah. Or are you just complaining about the ALS thing? Right. Because if you're concerned with clean water and, and wasting clean water, we'll get concerned about it. Yeah. But, but, but don't, you know, come down and attack people that are trying to raise funds for a good cause. Sure. You know, and raise awareness. So how much has ALS raised so far from this? Oh, they're up to around $60 million so far. But that's that's the ALSA.org, I believe, that is yeah. has, has gotten that so far. And, uh, of course, there's you know other concerns. That's way too much money for the problem. Uh, I've heard that one. That, you know, th- this disease only affects about six or 7,000 people a year. And I'm like, really? If you were affected with it, okay. wouldn't you want... <laughs> so that's true. But the thing, <laughs> the thing is, the people who are affected will die from this. Right. And it's painful. Right. That has to mean something to us right. as, as Christians. We, we should have some concern for that. Um, you know, like, for example, you know, I help in Haiti. And do you know work in, in Haiti? Haiti is a small country. Sure. Um, you know the same barbs could be thrown my way. Why aren't you helping in India where there's billions of people? Yeah, that, massive quantities of. You human, know why are you humanity. helping this little little bitty country? And the thing is, I don't think Jesus was deter- determined who he was helping based on the population that was affected or anything like that. It was all about just reaching out and caring for someone. Right. And loving someone. Right. There's also the concern that ALSA uh, does em- embryonic stem cell research, <laughs> uh, which, by the way, is illegal now. So I don't think anybody's doing that. Right. But besides that, there's tons of things you could give to besides ALSA. Sure. Um, the one we chose to contribute to is edstory.com. And Ed Dobson is a guy who has ALS, and he is using it. To to teach others about the hope of Jesus Christ in suffering, so I was like, okay, that's. To, to Sorry, <laughs> I'm working on a clip here, and it just went off. So, so you have to edit. So that anyway, out. <laughs> that, that's you know one of the things that, right. that has come up a lot, and and then there's um, there's the concern that oh people are doing it for the wrong reasons. Yeah, uh, they're just doing it for fun and attention. Uh, we don't give in public. We should be given in private. There's, you know, all, but every one of these things has a flip side to it. You can't raise awareness about something if you're doing it in secret. Right. So it's a little more than just donating. And as far as the motivation for it, you know, even Paul, when he was sitting in prison, told the Philippians, there are some people out there preaching the gospel to mock me <laughs> and to hurt me. But you know what? I'm happy. That's right. <laughs> because the gospel's getting preached. It's made a progress, and that's so, the point. Right. So. If if something good comes out of this, then we should rejoice about it. Exactly. Instead of, you know, sending the message to the world that yes, Christians are judgmental stick in the muds. <laughs> Which is what we've kind of we've got a reputation to maintain, I guess. Yes, I, I guess so. It's sad. <laughs> but you know, it's not a it's not a bad cause. It's an amazing cause. Uh, it's a sad disease, and it needs awareness, and it needs, like any other incurable disease, funding. And so, you know, it's there's nothing wrong with going out and throwing some ice water on yourself yeah. and making it to a $10 donation. And so maybe, you know, two months from now, it'll be history, no one will care anymore, whatever. But the fact is, right now, it's doing some good. Right. And and I, I think it's, it's, it's good that we've got, uh, you know, people that are taking interest in it. Right. Interest in helping in some way. And if you if you if you don't want to do it, fine, don't do it. 
but don't go online and, and, bash, just, it. and bash it and disparage all those who are right. participating. Exactly. So that's, sorry, I'm off my soapbox now. <laughs> well, I'll tell you a funny antidote that'll kind of ease the tension here. Okay. Uh, I did it already, but my wife didn't hit the record button. <laughs> <laughs> so guess who has to do it again <laughs> so yeah everybody I, I keep telling them guys I really I did I did the challenge and they're like I didn't see it you gotta you know uh, it didn't no, count it didn't happen of no pick so uh, so anyways I'm, I'm gonna do it anyways so uh, I got some news for you <laughs> alright and now the news <laughs> so, David, did you know that uh, Jesus Christ returned? Really? Yes. He's a Spanish-American <laughs> living in California. <laughs> Isn't that great? Oh, that's great. Yeah. Uh, I just uh, recently how got did a, mi- How did I miss that? I, I don't know, man. It's crazy. But uh, it's, it's just so amazing. You know, out of all the news, I picked this one because I think this... Deserves the utmost attention. This guy is going around claiming to be Jesus. And so I have a, uh, a clip that, that we'll listen from uh, CBS News. Um, Can't wait. The guy got so famous. He's, he's on a CBS News blurb. That's amazing to me. Wow. But uh, so here we go. Well, he uh, Jesus, right? Yeah. So. Or, or Jesus. However you want to say it. <laughs> here we go. I couldn't resist, by the way. But to his followers and in his own eyes, he's more than a man of God. Just ask him. I'm Jesus Christ, man, in front of you. That's right. He says he is the second coming. He claims in 1973 he had an epiphany. When Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, came to me, he integrated himself within me. So why you? I don't know. In the mid-80s, Miranda started his own ministry called Creciendo en Gracia, or Growing in Grace. It's a religious movement that claims a presence in more than 20 countries, mostly in Central and South America, but also in the United States. From Hartford to his headquarters in Miami, he says there are more than 30 teaching centers nationwide. We don't give membership cards. So I don't know how many I have, but certainly are millions. Every week we, we grow. And <laughs> wow! So this guy's got quite a following now. Uh, so he's Jesus, but he doesn't know how many members <laughs> exactly he has. I guess God hasn't revealed that to him yet. <laughs> but uh, anyways, I think it's amazing. He goes on to say, uh, they ask him about, so what do you think about all the different denominations and stuff right now? And he goes, they're all hogwash. They're all they got the wrong gospel. Then he goes on to say that there's no such thing as sin. Or sin doesn't exist anymore. So, uh, and he doesn't view as God doesn't uh, hate sinners, or God views everybody as perfect souls now. And uh, prayer is a waste of time. Not only that, but <laughs> Satan, yeah, Satan is a figure uh, that that it's a Hollywood figure. It's it's there's no such really, thing as Satan. Really, no such thing. So so there uh, there he is. I you know. It's kind of tongue-in-cheek, but it's also extremely sad that this happens. And we know that there's many antichrists out there, and 
Uh, the reality is, is there's going to be many more right, people claiming right. to be Jesus. Well, Jesus said that, you know. That's he, exactly he said right. That he said there's going to be um, people coming and, and claiming to be me. Right. So. But this is extremely dangerous. You know, I, I get a, an image of my, you know, of uh, Jim Jones. Oh, yeah. You remember that guy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, it, it's, it's... Don't drink the Kool-Aid. Exactly. So... You know, if Mr. Jesus is offering you some Kool-Aid, just don't drink it. <laughs> don't drink it, it no. And, uh, you know, wise up. <laughs> there was one guy on here that uh, basically sold everything he had to follow this guy. And they interviewed the guy. And the guy had, like, this almost fear in his eyes. And he's like, well, I gave everything I had, so I hope it's the right way to go. Right? <laughs> I'm going, dude, wow. you no, put all your eggs in the wrong not, basket. <laughs> not the one. So anyways, that's that's pretty much all the news I have for you today, but I thought uh, <laughs> I thought it was fitting enough that Jesus is returning in Cali. Well, that, that's good because I think that we've, we've got a really fun segment coming up. So awesome. In the primeval history of Genesis, an ancient war began between the seed of the serpent and the seed of Eve. Fallen angels called Watchers begot a race of giants called Nephilim, their goal, to stop the bloodline of the promised seed. But God had other plans. Chronicles of the Nephilim is a biblical fantasy series of novels that charts the rise and fall of the Watchers and the Giants in the stories of the Bible and in between. Read all eight novels. From Noah Primeval, all the way to Jesus Triumphant. Available on Kindle and paperback at Amazon.com. Go to ChroniclesOfTheNephilim.com and enter a world of ancient history and biblical imagination. That's ChroniclesOfTheNephilim.com. Okay, so I am uh, reading a book right now. Yeah. Yeah. You're reading a book. I'm reading a book. That's awesome. <laughs> I wrote a book. <laughs> the book is called um, Noah Primeval. Yeah. It's part of a um, a larger work. Now, called... wait, is this the book that the the Hollywood smash? No, not no, 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 not at all. Okay. No, we're a million miles away from that. Okay, good. <laughs> Good. <laughs> so it's part of a larger series by Brian Godawa, and we actually have him with us today. Awesome. Yay. Brian, welcome to the show. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. Hey, did I get your name right? No, it's Godawa. Godawa. We sorry, were wondering about, sorry that. about that. Hi, That's Brian. Right. <laughs> it's a hard one. <laughs> so, but yeah, I'm reading this book of yours, and I got to say, I'm really, really loving it. It's really cool. So, what are you liking about it, David? Well, um, as I was telling Brian before, I've I've got this this interest in the the pre-flood antediluvian study, and uh, so a lot of what he's incorporated into this story is stuff that has come right out of some research that I've read. I'm I'm reading it and going, wow, I know where that's coming from. Huh. Wow, that's awesome, you know. And uh, it's it's not some of the craziness that we have recently been subjected, <laughs> subjected to in the theaters. In theaters. Um, so you don't have rock monsters in your new book, or in your, not not new, but in your book, right, Ryan? <laughs> no, but I do have the Watchers, and I'll explain in a minute. Awesome. All right. So yeah, we, we, did, we did 
uh, prep that a little bit there about uh, about watchers. So. Cool. But uh, anyway, uh, Brian, can you tell us um, just a little bit about yourself, what your background is, and uh, how you, how we got this uh, series of books you're working on? Sure. Um, I uh, I am a, a published author and a Hollywood screenwriter, and um, my I'm most known for my movie To End All Wars with Kiefer Sutherland that oh, I wrote yeah. uh, a few years back. It's an, it's an oldie but uh, classic. Yeah. And um, so since that time, I've been uh, writing, you know, features in Hollywood. And um, but it's really, really hard to get movies made. And sometimes it takes years. And, sure. uh, you know, if you're not like an A-lister who's writing the you know biggest blockbusters, you got to do other things, too, to survive. <laughs> sure. <laughs> right. So a few years back, actually about four or five years back, I I um <clears throat> I started doing this study on on the weirdest passage in the Bible, and, uh, that's Genesis one through six. But to, to 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 tell you a little bit more about myself before I get into that, um, I'm also known in the Christian world as sort of like I wrote this book called Hollywood Worldviews, and what I did was, and it it it's used in uh, as. Uh, a texts in colleges across the nation and stuff, huh. because what I did was I wanted to sort of help, um, you know, religious viewers of movies to appreciate movies more, um, but also to be, have a more discerning eye as they watch movies. Because I think that a lot of Christians uh, often respond to the sex and violence in movies, you know, and sure. I, movies are my life right. and I love movies and movies have always been much more influential on me in terms of storytelling than even sermons. Uh, and, and, you know, rightfully so, the sex and violence issue is, is seems to be the biggest issue for a lot of Christians. And so but I I I really believe that that they throw the baby out with the bathwater. And I think there's a lot more sex and violence in the Bible that's rated R in some places than many Christians. Are willing to admit. <laughs> Amen, right? That's right. So well, I wanted to help educate them and say, well, look, you know, more importantly than that is the worldview. <laughs> and all stories have worldviews, even a raucous comedy. Um, has a worldview to it, right? right and so right. what's more important is for you to understand how storytelling embodies or incarnates a worldview, not and including values, your moral values, but also a view of the nature of the world and the universe. Mm -hmm. And that we storytellers are actually using our stories to persuade you without you even realizing it. And so it's important to understand. So I, I, I basically sort of gave a... Uh, Appreciating Storytelling 101 in my Hollywood Worldviews book awesome, so that people right? can watch movies and know what to look for to try to understand, you know, the meaning of the story behind it. And, and you know, rather than making, you know, I'm not one of those uh, culture watchdogs that's all about, like, finding out how bad everything is. <laughs> right. For me, it's more about, look, if you understand the nature of storytelling, you can watch and discern for yourself what's good and what's bad because – you know, very rarely are movies all bad or all good. They're all often, you know, in this world, they're, uh, you know, a mixture of good and bad. So I think that there's a way of being able to discern that for ourselves and be able to to interact with people by appreciating storytelling. So that's kind of what put me on the map in terms of published books. I, I wrote that book. Cool. and Well, you but, know, uh, what? Oh, uh, I'm in listening to you there, that really hits a chord with us. Yeah, uh, we we recently partnered up with another podcast uh, called Finding Christ in Cinema. We're both part of the GCT Network, which is the Great Tr Commission Transmission Network. Right. And Finding Christ in Cinema is right along the lines of what you're talking about: examining the worldview and finding the story of Jesus. Finding a way to use the story uh, in the films that we watch to 
show Christ or to bring the gospel to others. And, yeah. and uh, they've got a saying over there about content, and it's be a filter, not a sponge. So, you know, yeah. as, as you consume uh, this material, it's like uh, filter through that stuff, but don't, don't soak it up. Right. Yeah. A- excellent. You know, but yet if there is something good in a mo- in a movie, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, the power of good marriage that you see in Jerry Maguire, you know, or, yeah. um, you know, uh, just the, 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 the power of sacrifice, self-sacrifice that's in a lot of movies. Oh, you know, yeah. It's, uh, uh, you know, you can just name them. I mean, uh, <laughs> so, so many different sci-fi movies. And- yeah, yeah, exactly. Oftentimes, you know, the hero sacrifices himself. And that's sure. how that's how uh, even secular, godless man can understand and appreciate these certain, uh, you know, redemptive elements. Now, right. it's not always within the context of a Christian worldview that that redemption is shown, and and that's where I think we need to be intelligent. Right. So, for instance, you know, one of my favorite classic examples of all time is The Matrix, because you know there is very clear, you know, movie with a lot of uh, very deep. Uh, but very exciting in action and full of religious imagery and a lot of positive Christian imagery. But if you really understand the nature of the storytelling and the filmmakers, you know, who, who themselves have said they're Nietzschean, right. uh, you know, you really, really understand that what's going on there. There's a, uh, you know, it's a very, um, you know, sort of a, a, a deconstructive uh, nature of self-salvation. You know, you save sure. yourself, but they use messianic images. They use the metaphors that we're familiar with in our Judeo-Christian background, and they use them in the service of a different narrative, of a different redemption. But that doesn't mean that it's all bad either, because quite frankly, in The Matrix, it captures a lot of powerful truths that as a Christian I identify with, whether it's this notion that everyone is born blind and enslaved, right? You know, which right, Jesus, right. right? To waking up in the pod, and, and which was exactly my experience of being born again. I realized, oh my gosh, everyone around me is a slave and I was a slave. And yeah, so there's too. a lot of powerful truths that a movie, even in its, even if, in, if, if, even if it doesn't have a pro-Christ message or worldview to it, it doesn't mean it's, it doesn't have any truth to it. And so, right. That's the difficult is being able to discern those differences and and it becomes a, a means of conversation with with each other. You know, I'm a firm believer in in the fact that I believe God planted the idea of redemption deep within our within our beings. I believe that we're made to search out that that mm-hmm. whole story of redemption and it ends up showing up in all these different art forms, uh movies, music, books, um poetry, Almost in in everything, you can find a redemptive uh, uh, story, and yeah. uh, and so I, I, you know, I I see it everywhere I go. I'm a big avid comic book reader, <laughs> and uh, and I see the redemptive uh, story played out over and over and over in comic books. Right, right, right. and uh, so I, you know, I, I I I wholeheartedly agree with what you're saying there. I think it's an yeah. amazing thing to to pull out and to to engage the culture and, and the find the truths that are implanted within well, it. Well, and there are a lot of Hollywood filmmakers that are existentialists. Yes. So the, so they're, they're writing stories about why do I exist? Why am I here? And, yeah. and we have the answer to that. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. we, so we can actually use those type of films to, to guide us to Christ or to guide others to Christ. Sure. So. Absolutely. To, to identify, like, like Ecclesiastes can identify with the meaninglessness of life, of a life without God, or the need for the cr- inner cry, eternity is in 
all of our hearts, right? God right. has placed eternity in our hearts. So that's what you're talking huh. about. Right. And and uh, it's that cry for that need for redemption. And yeah, that we need we need to identify with that. And but not in a condescending way. It's not like oh, and I have the answer from the mountaintop. Let me help you up. It's really like <laughs> no, I'm you know wow, I can relate to this pain. Yeah. I love existentialism. Uh, you know, I'm I'm not an existentialist, but in some ways I I am. It's my favorite ph godless philosophy. <laughs> uh, but I, you know, there are there's a Christian version of it as well with Kierkegaard, and I've actually grown to appreciate that. In the past, I was against Kierkegaard, but now I actually appreciate and I identify a lot with um, much of what's said in terms of that that hmm. that inner cry and the recognition of the uh, the the um, shall we say the 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 uh, limits of human reason, you know, right. and, and in terms of understanding truth, you know, it's not the absolute. And I used to think it was because I was a modernist who was enslaved and not even realizing it, <laughs> enslaved to modernity and its worship of reason. Well, that doesn't mean, therefore, that reason isn't valid. It just means you have to have a, a prop. It can't be an idol. And um, so, mm. you know, we're now in a postmodern world where which is idolizing uh, the feelings. And and so you have, to, you know, it's a pendulum. Right, screen. right. But you know, the and there has to be a balance. It's yeah. just under, yeah, under, uh, being able to appreciate all these worldviews and there's truth in all of them, and then discerning the good from the bad, and and that becomes our, you know, our our discourse as human beings. We're not on the mountaintop looking down, saying, "Oh, we have the answers." But what we are is, we're simply beggars who knows where who know where there's bread. And right, hey, right. that's that's about <laughs> it. You know, that's about it. For oh, me. cool. Well, how did how did um, how did all of this type of thinking? Like lead you into this antediluvian study? How did because yes. obviously the, the the series of books is is really into the deep mysterious side of of some of these Bible passages. Right. Yeah. Desperation actually. See, what happens <laughs> over these years? I'm still I'm still a filmmaker, but it's it's very difficult to make films. You know, just trying to find other ways to do an income. And I've always wanted to write novels, and I thought, you know what, now. I got to I got to do other things. Not I wasn't making enough money just doing screenplays. So I, I well, hey, you can there's getting books published. And what's great nowadays is because of self-publishing on Amazon, if you can't get a publisher, you won't have wasted your time writing a novel because you can just publish it yourself if you right. want a publisher. Awesome. And but what happened was I actually had written a screenplay of Noah, and I'll I'll, I'll get into you know what what you know, motivate, motivate, motivated me there, but I was out there trying to get it, you know, interesting. Cause it was like, I'm thinking like, this, no one's done this. No one's done this. And then eventually <laughs> I found out, Oh, Darren Aronofsky is making a Noah movie. So he, you know, he's really going to beat me to the punch, I think. Oh. <laughs> this was like a few years back. And so I realized wow. oh, I might, as, I, I wanted to beat him to the punch and, and, and I thought, well, let me put mine into a novel and get it out. So at least I can say mine came out first. And, and because <laughs> mine was so cool, I thought nobody, I, I thought I heard, Hey, he's going to have watchers in it. Uh Oh, maybe he's going to have something similar. Right. So it inspired me to get the novel out. But what happened was this, I, you know, when I did, I started doing the original research on it, I started realizing, Oh my gosh, there's more than just one story here of Noah. This, this, this storyline of giants and Nephilim and the watchers goes throughout the whole Bible. And right. it's this underlying thread that I didn't see because of my sort of modern Christian Western worldview. And I started realizing, Oh man, there's many stories in here. There are other books and novels. And that's sort of what inspired me to write the series huh. Chronicles of the Nephilim. Right. And right. right now I'm up to like my seventh book, King uh, David Ascendant. It's about the story of King David coming out. But the origination of the whole thing started with, um, you know, Genesis 1-6 had always been the strangest 
most bizarre passage in the Bible to me, and that's where it says, you know, um, before the flood, it talks about how, um, uh, you know, uh, that man began to multiply on the face of the earth, and 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 the sons of God, which is a term of of uh, angels in heaven, the sons right. of God saw that the daughters of men on earth were attractive, and they came and they married them and and took them as wives or whatever, and. And the Nephilim were on the earth in those days the, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and bore them children. And I was like, what is this? You know, yeah. what, what Nephilim yeah. and what are these sons of God? And, you know, and so I started looking into it. And I, I stumbled upon this uh, evangelical author, actually, um, Michael Heiser. And um, huh. I stumbled upon his work, and he was the first one that sort of opened my eyes like Elisha's servant eyes were open to see the, the, the chariots in heaven, you know? Right. And his, his work on the Bible, which was a very – he's a very responsible scholar. He's not, you know, he's not one of these nutballs or whatever. He's very responsible, but he actually <laughs> wrote about the Nephilim and the Watchers but it's, and, and the Divine Council of Sons of God in Heaven. And his books are now coming – I actually found his book before it was published because he just didn't think he would get it published. Wow. And uh, I, I read it online, and, and that's what opened the door for me that I began to see this storyline. I want to tell your listeners what the name of the book is now. Sure, it, it's sure. coming out, uh, I think, in February, but you can, you can get pre-orders or something right now. Michael Heiser, and the, the name of the book is called uh, Supernatural. Now, that is the public... I'm not the public. Um, how shall we put it? That's the simple version of of the book. He has a more academic version where he goes more in depth into the Bible study of the same material called the unseen realm. So if you really want to get into it deep, that's the one you want to get is the unseen realm, where it talks about the Nephilim in the Bible and the Watchers in the Divine Council from a very scholarly, uh, responsible position. Oh, that's awesome. We um, yeah. when whenever I was first doing my study on it, I was. Um, I, I was like you. I was reading Genesis six, and I'm going, "Wait a minute! There's some really strange stuff in here." And uh, I heard a study by Chuck Missler uh, yeah. about it, and I'm sure you've probably heard some of his things on on this issue. And um, I was just like really compelled, like, "Wow, this is new!" But then I started <laughs> finding out, no, it's not new. Yeah. <laughs> in fact, all these um, anti-Nicene fathers and all these writings that date back to 100, 200, they're all quoting this stuff like it's fact. Right. Yeah. And and, yeah. and it's quoted in the New Testament. Uh, right. The Book of Enoch's quoted in the Book of Jude. Right. Uh, yeah. it, there's just all kinds of, of interesting things there. And then I started talking with friends, and they were like, oh, no, 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 that Sons of God thing, that's, yeah. talk, that's talking about the line of Kings, Seth yeah. versus Seth, the line yeah. of Cain. And yeah, I'm like, well, yeah. how did that produce giants? <laughs> exactly. And then, of course, the question is, well, does Nephilim mean giants or fallen ones and all this? Right. And the, the thing about it was, for me, I just sort of said, you know, there are weird things in the Bible we don't always understand. So I would just sort of like go, okay, that's one of the weird ones. And I would read on. And and then, you know, of course, we all know Goliath. Goliath was a giant. Yeah. But some people seem to think he's like the only giant in the Bible. Right. Uh, Not but even. Also, wait a minute. The, you know, Joshua talked about there being... The land is filled land. with Anakim, and they were tall as the cedars when in, in, the, in the promised land. And like, wait a minute, there are these passages that would refer to giants occasionally, right. and I would just continue to sort of go, yeah, well, whatever, that's a weird thing. But then <laughs> I start realizing, whoa, there's way more about them than you realize, and it's tied to a storyline. And that storyline yeah. is what the Chronicles of the Nephilim, my novel series, is about. I decided, okay, here's what I wanted to do. 
I wanted to retell all the stories in the Bible that reference the giants or the Nephilim and sometimes the watchers and tell the, retell those stories and fill them out with this historical research and biblical research that people aren't aware of. Mm -hmm. But I also, I also said, but I want to do one thing. Other. I, I want to integrate the, the, the ancient mythology of the day in a, in a sort of a, make it like a, uh, almost like a fantasy. So like you're reading Lord of the Rings. So I wanted to make a little bit of the biblical imagery come alive. Right. And so I decided rather than writing this saying, well, this is a historical novel, what really happened in the Bible times, which of course <laughs> we don't know, right? Right. I said, well, look, I'm going to make it a theological novel. So I'm going to make some things that are spiritually meaningful and I want to show the spiritual warfare. And so, for example, I, I, I do things like the Bible talks about Leviathan. Leviathan's a common a common uh, monster in the Bible. Right. And there are different theories about what that is. Is he a dinosaur or whatever? But uh, after studying it, I'm completely convinced that Leviathan is a sea dragon of chaos. And that's what he was in all the ancient religions of the Jewish times. That huh. he, was a, he was a metaphor for chaos that the God would push back in order to establish his covenant order. Mm. And all the other nations used it in that way. <laughs> so did Israel. And if you study the passages, you'll, you'll see that it's a metaphor. And, but I thought, well, I'm going to make the metaphor come alive, and, and I'll have a literal sea dragon called Leviathan in my story. Right. So you'll see where I'm like, okay, he's using biblical imagery, and he's making it some of it a little fantastical, but then sometimes he's not because the Bible also talks about these sons of God and these watchers, and it's like, well, what, what are they? And you, you, know, you read about them in Daniel— and again, these were strange passages that I would always just go, oh, well, weird thing I won't understand. But as yeah, I study yeah. it further, you know, under Heiser's writings and stuff, I realized, oh, my gosh, there's something going on here with these watchers. And it goes all the way back to the Proto-Evangelion, the first messianic promise in the Bible that scholars say is Genesis 3. Uh, 15, I think it is, or yeah, 315 yeah, to 17, exactly. where, you know, God's cursing <clears throat> the serpent in the, in the garden, you right. know, after he, you know, he's initiated the fall and, and he, God says, look, you know, I'm going to put a, uh, I'm going to curse you and I'm going to put enmity or war between the seed, your seed and her seed, the seed of Eve. So it's the seed of serpent versus the seed of Eve. And of course, uh, the seed of, of Eve, you know, is singular. It says he will fight against you and you will you he will crush your head and you know you will bite oh, his heel type of thing. Yeah. And so scholars say that that's the first messianic reference to a messiah seed who will come. Right, right. And so that's basically what it is is the war of the seed is something that goes throughout and it's connected to the giants. It it even explains a lot of strange things that we you know we would often go like, well, why would God kill? Why does he say in Canaan certain tribes, not all of them, but certain tribes, the Girgashites and the Anakim and stuff. I want you to kill every man, woman, and child. Yeah, Why would out. he do that? Is that, you know, racial genocide? What's going on there? Well, you realize that in if you study it further, you find out that all those specific tribes in Canaan had giants in them. And there is a deliberate attempt to wipe out the giants in Joshua 11. Joshua says, hey, right. I went out and I hunted down the Anakim and got rid of them in all these different areas. And the Anakim are described as giants. And like, why is he deliberately going after the Anakim? Well, if you understand that there's a connection between this going all the way back to Genesis 6, which the author of, of Numbers, when he says that there are giants in the land of Canaan, he says they, are, they come from the Nephilim. And the only other place the Nephilim are mentioned is Genesis 
six. Right. So there's this continuity. So, yeah, it ties t- together. But exactly. let me ask you a question here. So, uh, and a lot of people might ask this question too. We have uh, the giants before the flood, and then all of a sudden we have giants after the flood. How did they survive the flood? Yes. That's a good well, question. <laughs> that's a very good question. And like, honestly, there's several theories uh, that yeah. can answer that. And all of them are within the realm of orthodox Christian interpretation. Right. There are different views. And uh, one of them is that, uh, well, it says that the Nephilim were on the earth those days and also afterward. And the, the context is talking about the flood. So right. it's probably after the flood. Obviously, it has to be because they're, they're there in the, in the land of promise, right? They're there in Canaan. Yeah. So, so and they weren't on the boat. So Well, well here's the thing. So there's, there's several <laughs> theories. One is... Very simply, that that they started. To, uh, the premise is this in Genesis six that the sons of God are angel, angelic beings. They're divine beings in heaven. It's not necessarily just angels in the sense of angels can be lower messengers of God, but they were the high heavenly host. They were part of God's heavenly host, and so they're a special identity in terms of uh, uh, in 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 the divine council of God's heavenly host. So some of these rebel and come to earth. And they mate with human women, mm-hmm. and then that's where the giants come from. So these giants are literally angelic human hybrids. Which again, I'm sort of a tip. I'm I'm kind of a moderate Christian guy, and <laughs> that kind of stuff sounds like oh, that's really goofy. Stuff. So yeah. mythical, yeah. Yeah, come on, half angel. Half <laughs> but then again, how much of our Christian understanding oh, has been seriously? affected by post enlightened? you know, um, rejection of the supernatural, even though we believe in the supernatural, but we kind of don't in a right, lot of people Right, right. And, and that's so, been one of my points about the whole thing. It's like, you know, one, one of my friends told me one time, he was like, you know, I can't go with you on this whole, uh, this whole fallen angel thing because it's just too mystical. And I was like, wait a second, what's not mystical about a man dying on a cross and coming back from the dead? <laughs> Being born of a virgin. Right. right. Walking, walking on water. How is it much different from a guy who's a hybrid of God and man? Yeah. Well, a good point. Of God. <laughs> good point. How, you know, in other words, yeah, you're right. It's, it's, it's like mystical. we do believe some fantastic things. Absolutely. Right. Uh, and, and and so I'm at the point where, look, I honestly still think it's wild and it's hard to believe, but I'm taking it I'm taking it at face value in the sense of the context of the Bible as well sure. and what it means in the context of the Bible. Okay, well, hang on one second. I want to I want to back up on you there for a minute. Uh, I really thought it was cool what you're talking about. How these sons of God, the Bene Elohim in in Genesis six, yep. aren't necessarily just your normal everyday angels. Yeah. Um, as far as from my research, and you might correct me if I'm wrong, but um, I found uh, a single other reference to Bene Elohim, and it's in Job 1. Yep. Okay, and in Job 1, we have the sons of God coming into this council with God. Convening with God. Convening yeah. with him. And one of the people present is Satan. Right. Yep. So in, in your... Uh, research or in your opinion, do you think that Satan is one of these, this brand of, of, of angelic being? Yeah. And, and I think, I also think that there's a whole understanding of actually it's called the Satan. It's not a, a, it's not, it's not a proper name. It's actually a, it's actually a uh, title 
for that means the, the accuser, right? Adversary. And it's, adversary. A, it's a legal term that has to do with he's like the prosecutor. So he his his purpose is part of God's court. His purpose is to accuse and to challenge God, etc. And so, yeah, even that, even understanding of Satan is not quite, I think, biblically not quite the same as, as what our evangelical background has taught us. But it's that's not the only place sons of God are. The Mexican Jesus is right. Yes. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that, Brian. We... <laughs> And I mean, you know, there's there's a lot to talk about Satan. I don't want to get into him totally, but First Kings 22 also talks about the host of heaven, who are these these this heavenly council, and it's the same heavenly council, and they come before God and they counsel with Him, and again, Satan is part of that as well, and and so yeah, there are many places, and and there there are other passages in in the Bible that talk about sons of God as well. There's Psalm 82, Psalm 89. So there are other passages, and you have to really study it in depth. But the short of it is this: and, uh, another, there's a, you mentioned the Book of Enoch. That's another. It's be, it's 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 something that's starting to get more uh, more reputation these days. More Christians are starting to read it and respect it. And the reason why is is because of this. It's again because of our normal Christian background. Oh, only the Bible, New Testament. <laughs> there's no more other. There's no other books in the Bible. So therefore, nothing else is is true outside the Bible that talks about God. Well, yeah, I believe in the standard notion that the scriptures are the only scriptures, and I don't think there's any other scriptures. However, as you mentioned, when the Book of Enoch. You, <laughs> The Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament, both tell us that they they quote other sources outside of the Bible. In the, right. in the Old Testament, there are there's like 20 or 30 books that the authors of the Bible say, hey, we got this information from the book of Jasher. We got this information from the book of the Wars of Yahweh. Mm -hmm. The so Jubilees. Like the, the Bible quotes other books as, as being truthful. And then in the New Testament, in Jude and in Peter, it quotes and uh, paraphrases directly from the book of Enoch. Right. You don't have to believe the book of Enoch is scripture. That's fine. But you have to admit if you believe scripture and scripture quotes Enoch and refers to it positively, it gives it authority. You have to take it seriously if that's you right. claim to be a sola scripture or Christian. Amen. I, I so agree. Because it doesn't necessarily make it scripture, it just makes right. it there are some truths in the book. Yeah. Exactly. And when you read the book of Enoch, that's an elaboration on these giants and watchers and before the flood and after the flood and during the time of Noah. So there's a lot more descriptive detail. I'm not saying it's all true, but I'm definitely saying the basic interpretation of giants, watchers before the flood, that's what the New Testament's quoting. So I believe that basic interpretation of Enoch because the New Testament tells me so. Yeah. Right. Especially when Peter... Uh, well, Peter and Jude both talk about angels being bound. That comes right out of this storyline. Exactly. So, exactly. so it's it's not like, oh, okay, this is far out stuff. It, it, the storyline itself isn't too far out because Peter and Jude are both using it. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So I, I thought, well, I want to make sense of this, and I want to retell this story of Noah in a way that you know that would incorporate this what what does that mean so what would it be like to have giants before the flood going around and you know uh, <laughs> what would that be like and we don't know and and so i tried to be consistent with genesis but also consistent with the book of enoch and i also tried to incorporate some of the other ancient jewish legends about that that weren't you know 
that were not anti-biblical, you know? Right. So I, I incorporated all that research into retelling the story of Noah. And, um, uh, and, and like I said, I realized, oh my gosh, I've, the, I've got to retell the, how this storyline continues on because even though God destroys the world and, and partly because of these Nephilim hybrids and, and, and what they were doing, they show up again. And you're, we're back to your original question. Well, how could that happen? Okay, there's several theories. One is, you know, and, and look, let's be honest, no matter what we believe, we have to acknowledge that there are other interpretations within Orthodox Christianity. Right. So if you believe in a, in a global flood, then either, uh, and you also believe Noah was pure, because actually the Genesis 6 says that Noah was pure in his generations, which means it's a that that word it's not just that he was a good guy no, or he was good in his actions without the word, gene yeah the, the, that's right. i think that that's genetically cuz that word pure is the same word that's used of unblemished lambs in the sacrifices of leviticus ah, so right. so there's this cleanness of his genes that's going on there and um, so okay he and and his wife probably don't have it therefore his sons don't have it but it doesn't say anything about their wives. That's right. <laughs> what, it could be, there could be a recessive gene in there. Right. Or yeah. there could, uh, something else could be going on there. That's a possibility. That's right? what, that's my theory. That's and an interesting. Ham, uh, I, I point to Ham. I don't know yeah. why. I just. Uh, well, Ham's an interesting character in your book, too, by the way. I, I really love what you're doing with Ham. That, that yeah. Was, I, I haven't finished it yet, so I don't know where it's oh, going. Yeah, yeah. But, well, I, but I will say I really like what you were doing with him. Yeah, and, and there's another way, though, too, and that is um, that, it, well, it's entirely possible that the sons of God started doing the same thing after the flood, because after all, you know, I mean, some right. of them were bound in the earth, but not all of them, and there could be fallen fallen angels, et cetera, and they could start mating with women again. The, in, the implication in the Bible is that it probably didn't happen, because if God did all that kind of devastation the first time, I could see them being afraid to do it again. Right. Yeah. And there's no there's no description in the Bible that they started to do it again. So there's a strong argument that they didn't. However, it's only implied. You, it's not said. So it's still a possibility that they may have done it again. Well, and but who's to say it, it's not happening today? You know what I mean? <laughs> if you yeah, take that yeah. possibility. See, now, where are it. you seeing giants? Uh, hey, Yao Ming, come on. <laughs> you would also think, though, that if it were... I would think that if they did were doing it again, that there would be some indication that it was. So, sure. so I don't know, because there isn't... It, 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 it's suspect to me. Right. But there's a third option, and that is that if you believe in a, a local flood. So, uh, and, you know, look, I, I don't know what you or your listeners believe, but we have to be honest and admit no, that. I'm out on that I'm one. I'm believing scholars <laughs> say that it was a local flood, and, and, and that's entirely possible, which means, therefore, it's, it's not, yeah, they could have survived it, you know. Now, there's all things you have to answer and questions that come up in your mind, but that is a, one orthodox possibility. I did, in my novel, I wanted to sort of have all those theoretical possibilities. So I sort of wrote it in such a way that everybody can, I have all of them possible. So, so I, I incorporate all of those ideas because, you know, I didn't want to take a particular stance on any one of them. So I actually gotcha. do that with all the novels. And, uh, and as you read the novels on, you know, you do there, there's some really interesting things that are going on. For instance, uh, I mentioned that, that it doesn't say that after Genesis, it doesn't say specifically that the sons of God started going into the daughters of men again. However, Sodom and Gomorrah is a very curious passage to me. 
Mm. Because it's one of those things that, again, it's a very unique destruction. God destroys these five cities with a massive fire from heaven, unlike any other destruction he's done other than the flood, right? That's right. true. And it says there's something going on there that was really serious, you know? And of course, we all know the typical passage of Lot and the angels coming, and most Christians traditionally see that passage, ah, see, homosexuality, they wanted to have sex <laughs> with the men, and that's why God destroyed the city. No. I don't believe that that's the case it's at no, all. It's actually. bigger than that. Yeah. Yeah. And and you, we, we, we come, I think, again, if you're a Bible Christian, you go to Jude and you go to uh, Peter, and it says that it refers to those that very incident of Sodom and Gomorrah, oh. and it refers to going after strange flesh. That's right. But it's it's humans going after angel flesh. It's not really it. You can include male going after male, but that's not the strange flesh. The strange flesh in the ancient world had to do with angels mating with humans, not wow. homosexuality. Okay, so yeah, that's and I never really thought about that. But you're right. The Peter passage and the Judas, the Jude passage, both in reference to this binding of the angels, immediately turns around and mentions Sodom and Gomorrah. Exactly. And the, so you'll read in my uh, appendices, I do, I, sh I explain where that all came from. And there's a linking of Sodom and Gomorrah with Noah in a lot of intertestamental uh, uh, Jewish Jewish passages, not just the Bible. In fact, there's. That's the only connection in the Bible with Sodom and Gomorrah and Noah is that one passage. But that is actually a meme that goes through a lot of intertestamental literature. And I, 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 uh, I talk about that. But here's the point. The point is this, is um, I think that, that maybe there's an indication then that, that there was more of that angelic human flesh thing going on. And that's why God takes it so seriously that he destroys it with such devastation mm -hmm. that tells these other watchers, don't do this because you're going to get the worst of the worst. You know what I'm saying? Right. And so in my book, Abraham Allegiant, I explained Sodom and Gomorrah within that new, unique context. <laughs> cool. And and I explained it all with consistently with the Bible, but I also bring some of that out that I actually think that 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 was that was possibly going on there again at Sodom and Gomorrah. And that's wow. why God oh. did that. Well, you know, one thing that um, that I wanted to, to bring up is that um, the book, the first one that I'm reading is, is it reads very much like a movie. I mean, yeah. it, I can tell you're a screenwriter, <laughs> but that's Which a good thing awesome. because it, it, <laughs> it moves at a very good pace. Uh, yeah. It does have this uh, complete different uh, view of the antediluvian thing than anything else I've ever seen as far as, as fiction goes. Yeah. Uh, cause, because almost everybody wants to put Noah in this as the old guy with the big, long yeah. gray beard and he's a farmer and, you know, and all this stuff is very peaceful looking. Yeah. Whereas I'm reading your book and it's like, no man, Noah's this warrior, a uh, barbarian type human living in the woods with a tribe of, of, of warriors. And, and uh, it, it very much has this, um, this hero's journey happening, the yeah. whole Joseph Campbell type of, of yeah. mythology happening. And I thought that was really awesome the way you incorporated that. What, um, 
So, so were you inspired by, by like Lord of the Rings and that sort of thing? You know, I, I definitely am. I definitely am. And like I said, I pushed the envelope <laughs> a little bit in terms of some fantasy imagery to make it more exciting at times. Uh, but all anything I do in those books is based on research and based on biblical imagery. But particularly with Noah, I thought this. I thought, you know, the, the Bible says after the flood, he became a grower of vineyards and all that, right? Right. Yeah. But that's after the flood, see? And it doesn't say what he did before the flood. And I thought, well, if the world was as wicked as Genesis 6 says it is, right? It says, <laughs> it says that it was like violence, every thought of the intention of man's heart was evil continually, and it was a very violent world. Well, right. in order to survive, you would probably have to be a warrior or very violent, right? Right. So it's, it's like a like a David or a Joshua. And so it's very consistent with what it might have been back then. And here's the other thing, that notion of taking up agriculture afterwards, that's a very common theme throughout history. George Washington did it. He became, he was a warrior, but after he was a warrior, he came back and he settled down because <laughs> he didn't want to be. That's right. Uh, Cincinnatus of Rome, he was famous because he came out to, to rescue Rome. And afterwards he went back to become a farmer because he didn't want to continue on as a warrior. So this is a common theme of warriors who want to, they want peace. They're not doing war because they're warmongers. They engage in war because they have to, um, they want to bring about peace and then they go back to that peace. Right. So that's a very common notion. Well, and think about it in terms of like Abraham. I yeah. Mean, Abraham's this, this nomadic guy and you, and he, and, and he has to separate from Lot because of the herds and all this sort of thing. So yeah. he's, he's domestic, but yeah. at the same time, <laughs> he goes and gets Lot out of, out of, um, out of trouble right. <laughs> with an army right. of like 300 people. Exactly, which is why my Abraham is also a warrior in my story. <laughs> right. Genesis 14, you're right, you're absolutely right. We think of him as an old oh, pastoral with sheep and shepherd, but in that time period, look, Genesis 14, he rescued with 300 men, and he probably had a couple thousand others with him, but his 300 men and, and a couple thousand rescues Lot from, Lot was captured by a coalition of five armies right. thousands of guys to rescue <laughs> him from an army he had to be a warrior folks oh yeah so yeah yes. in my story he's a shepherd but he does he is a warrior as well so these are the surprises that we find in the bible that i wanted to make by and, and people are telling me this as they read them they're making these bible heroes come alive in a new unique way but it's not being against the bible it's actually unveiling things about them that we overread or yeah. we missed you well know? we've been following tradition exactly. instead of following the bible on these things right so exactly. i mean it's it's like going around thinking that the devil looks like something dante gave us the imagery yeah. for instead of of viewing it in terms of what the bible tells us yeah and exactly. So you know, one of the things also that I thought was really cool about the about what you've done is um, these fallen angels, these watchers in the story, are going through all kinds of hoops in order to establish themselves as false gods. Yes, and I'm hearing as I'm listening to them uh, subvert the humans, I'm hearing all this ancient pagan Sumerian uh, belief system belief systems out, yeah. and so I wanted to to, to to get you to talk a little bit about uh, what all you incorporated into okay this is where pagan beliefs came from and that sort yes. of thing because it sounds like that's where you're going with it 
Yeah, no, uh, that, great. Thanks for bringing that up. That's another premise. Uh, one of the premise of my whole series is is this. I said, what if the gods of the ancient world, all, you know, in as we know, all through history, ancient Sumerians, Babylonians, Assyrians, they all had gods. And we just assumed that they didn't exist. But I said, what if the gods of the ancient world were real supernatural beings with powers? <laughs> Only they weren't those gods as they knew them, but they were these fallen watchers that the Bible talks about who who set themselves up as gods and they created these false religions to yeah. draw worship away from, from Yahweh. But here's the interesting thing, you guys. I didn't make that up out of whole thin air. It's kind of true in the Bible. Because if you look, if you, again, this is something that that I, one of the things, I'll, I'll get into my appendix, make sure we talk about the appendices too. Okay. But um, <laughs> I haven't got to the appendices yet. So. <laughs> yeah. Deuteronomy 32 talks about this strange thing about how it, it actually says that, I'm trying to find the passage here. Of course, I, I lost it. Um, where <laughs> is it? Where is it? Okay. All right, here it is. Deuteronomy 32 talks about this. It talks about during the time of Babel, it says, when the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind at the Tower of Babel, he fixed the borders of the people according to the number of the sons of God. There they are again. Mm. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. And there are other passages where he says, you know, Deuteronomy wow. 4, he says, uh, he's talking to the Israelites. He says, beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven and you see all the stars and the host of heaven. And they weren't just stars back then. They believed the stars were gods. Right. And he said, God has allotted those gods to all the peoples under the whole heaven. My point here, and there are other passages where God, Moses says this. He goes, I can't remember where it is, but um, Moses says in a passage, I'm trying to find it off the top of my head. Um, can't find it. He goes, the... In the, in the land of Canaan, the gods that the people sacrifice to are not gods, but are demons. He literally says that a couple places. Wow. So I'm thinking, well, maybe there's a spiritual reality behind these gods. And what if it was these watchers? And so I pushed it a little bit. And I said, I literally made them those watchers pretending to be gods. And, and that's where these false religions came from. So it's kind of a, I'm explaining where false religions came from. I'm tying them in with these fallen watchers, but I'm also tying them in with this other interesting, fascinating biblical thread that's called the allotment of the nations. And that is this notion that I didn't used to believe as a good Christian evangelical, but now I do, <laughs> even though it's weird. And that is... You know, when you read Daniel and you say, yeah, the prince of Persia fighting the prince of Israel, which is Michael, and their supernatural watchers, what? Well, now it makes sense to me because there's passages where the Bible talks about how around the time of Babel, basically God takes the 70 nations, the 70 Gentile nations that are talked about in, you know, Genesis uh, 11 or 10, <laughs> Mm -hmm. And he said, and he allots them. He allots them as under the authority of these territorial watchers, and so the there's this notion in the Bible of there are pagan nations are under the authority of these sort of fallen watcher beings, but God allots His nation Israel to Himself, and Michael the archangel is the allotted watcher over Israel. And and so then Israel comes into Canaan and takes over that territory from that fallen watcher who at that who you know at the time of Canaan there are all these different gods but at the time of Christ it was Satan right mm -hmm. so my point here is that there's this strange thing of territorial authorities that we read about later 
in Paul's theology called principalities and powers. And the notion is this, and it's an ancient notion that the Jews, as well as their surrounding cultures, believed. And that was that, as you know, what did Jesus say on earth as it is in heaven? They believed that that what was going on in earth was tied to what was going on in heaven or the heavens. And that when there were battles on earth, that there were also battles in heaven between these authorities of principalities and powers. Wow. And that the two were intimately connected. And the Bible talks this way. And look, I like I said, you guys. Well, to- yeah, that makes sense because uh, you were talking about the, the passage there in Daniel. Uh, it's always been fascinating to me, this Prince of Persia thing. Yeah. Because, yeah. because what Michael says, in he's, he's like, he had this job to come... Um, speak with, um, no, Gabriel, right? Uh, yeah. Came to speak with Daniel, and he says, I'm sorry I'm late. Yeah. I got held up by this prince of Persia. Yeah. And then he turns around and says, well, now I got to go again. I got to deal with the prince Greece. <laughs> yes. And and so if, you, if we know our history, Daniel was in Babylon. The yep. nation that took Babylon was Persia, Persia yeah. and the nation that took over Persia was Greece. Was Greece. Exactly. So there is a, a war in the heavenlies that is intimately connected to what goes on earth. And by the way, this is wow. something this is something <laughs> that cool. goes Yeah, this is again, this our modern minds don't like this stuff because it sounds like fantasy. <laughs> but, and, or, or, but I like fantasy. Stuff, so. oh, that's made up religion, you know, uh, that secular people say, but even Christians are like Come on, really? You know, <laughs> right. look, it's in there, man, and I believe it now because it's in the Bible. And I, I, I'm, it, I, I yeah. So, <laughs> and, wow. and transform my whole way of seeing history and my whole way of seeing the Bible, and that's why I'm retelling all these stories. I bring all that into all the novels of the Chronicles of the Nephilim. I've got the Watchers. Um, I don't have Daniel. I don't have a novel on Daniel, but. In Daniel, it talks about watchers. That's where the term watchers comes from. It's not outside of the Bible. It's in the Bible. And those watchers are connected to the prince. And the word prince of Israel or prince of Persian stuff, it's not a, an earthly term. It's 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 called sar in, in Hebrew, I think, it, or in Aramaic. And it actually is a reference that, that means, uh, you know, heaven, connected to the heavenlies. Hmm. So it's, yeah, it's this whole paradigm of heaven and earth are intimately connected. Well, it goes beyond that too, because it also goes into the ancient beliefs that the Israelites had as well, and that was that the temple, the ancient temples on earth were connected to a temple in heaven, and that's why in Psalms and in other passages we read about this temple of God in the heavenlies, and they believe it's connected to what's what's going on in the temple on earth is connected to what goes on in the temple in heaven. So this is this is a notion that that extends beyond. Uh, and goes into these very fascinating concepts, all of which I try to bring into wow. into into the the series. Now, again, I because I come from this, you know, Christian Bible believing background. You know, uh, I realize that a lot of Christians are going to think, "Uh oh, you know, you're playing with the Word of God." <laughs> and I was kind of a, since I come I come from that background I kind of had that fear too but God has freed my imagination from some of the shackles of my man-made religion. Yeah, we've actually I've I've had those type of conversations with some brothers and they would start out like really like I know one brother in particular who he was adamant against this stuff. I mean, he was like no way there's no way uh Angels are sexless. They don't. They can't yeah. have sex with women. And they. And then he would go into Matthew 
where Jesus is talking to the Sadducees. They've never get, neither given nor taken. It, right, yeah. how he's telling right. the Sadducees they're not giving in marriage. I'm like, well, that's different. That's talking about relationships, not physical, you know. Intimacy. But now this same guy is calling me up and going, oh, dude, man, did you hear about the, the rock wall in Rockwall, Texas, and I'm like, "What are you oh, talking yeah. about?" Yeah. <laughs> and he starts talking about all this this giant archaeology that has been dug up here in. Yeah. That's only about 45, 50 miles from us. Wow. <laughs> and I'm really? like, "Wow, really?" <laughs> well, you know what? What I did was, since I knew it would, people would have a hard time. Christians would have a hard time with it. But hey, I'm writing stories about Bible characters, which is, you know. So my my main my main audience is going to be probably mostly Bible believers. So sure. I I felt like okay I wanted to offer help for those who would have trouble with this wild new take mm -hmm. and be fearful of it. And I said, well look at the end of each of my novels I have an appendix or several appendices, which I provide the biblical research and my historical research that that I founded everything upon so that people can get a theological understanding of what's going on and, and go, oh, okay, I see he is, this is theologically, he's getting this from the Bible. Mm -hmm. And that helps them to appreciate it for those who are a little bit more fearful. And every one of the novels has that. And then what happened was people were telling me they love the appendix as much as the novel because it's really <laughs> in-depth Bible study. So what I did, I... I've taken all the appendices and put them into one separate book of, so it's all the Bible study material on giants and it's called, and it's available on Amazon and it's called when giants were upon the earth. The Nephilim, the, the watchers and other, and the war of the seed in the Bible. Wow. And so for those who just want to do a study, the Bible aspect of it, cause you know, maybe they don't want to read novels. They can buy that book and that's been just as good of a seller as any of the novels because people are, are just loving the in-depthness that I, I go into the Bible as well as, as um, his, history and mythology. But I tend to use a lot of scholarly work because I'm not, I'm not a pop, I don't draw from populist, sensationalist or other writers. Like a lot of times these people, particularly in the crowd of people who are into the Nephilim and all that, yeah. they tend to quote each other and I just I like to do scholarship, and so that's what I that's what I studied. That's really so good. my I stay mostly in the ancient world, and I quote a lot of scholarship. And so people who want that can get can get that as well from my novel. That's cool. Well, you know, um, we're we're running a little short on time, but what I want to do I want to talk about a couple of other things right quick uh, that just fascinated me in the in in the book. And one and one of those things is the incorporation of the elongated skulls that yeah. the watchers have and that uh, the humans start binding their heads to create. Um, now, for people who maybe not know, this is something that there's real archaeology around this elongated skull stuff. Uh, there's a bunch of weird mystic stuff out there concerning crystal skulls that yeah. that latest Indiana Jones movie really yeah. tried to... <laughs> to get into but there's some really curiously <laughs> curiously weird stuff that really yeah. does exist around this yeah and uh for example in uh i believe it's paracas yep uh in in uh, south america in peru um these skulls have been found and there's here recently this year uh they've done dna testing on them and and confused everybody because they're basically saying we don't know what this is this yeah. doesn't really fit any human species we've ever encountered <laughs> before. And in addition to that, 
there's the parietal, um, there's, there's like what in a normal skull, there's a, 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 parietal, a, plate. a yeah. parietal plate that's not there on these skulls. Wow. So it's not even human anatomy. And then there's a, a, even an additional thing there. The, the capacity of these skulls is abnormally large, just like yes. the skull itself. And you can't do that by binding. You can stretch what's there, but yep. you can't create more mass. I mean, you can't like create a bigger skull than what you really have. Right. Yes. So there's a big mystery around this. What is it? You know, and and of course, all the secular uh, uh, George Norries of the world are are you know hollering ancient aliens. Right. And so, but I've noticed that you've incorporated some of this into the novels, and so I kind of wanted to get your take on how that fit in with your thinking. Excellent questions. I, you guys are one of the best. You're one of the best shows I've been on, man. Because you're <laughs> some of the coolest stuff. Absolutely, yeah. I, in, in fact, in a way, I think my series is an antidote to the ancient aliens. This is look, you guys, man. I, I've been around for a long time. In my in my day, when I was a kid, it was called Chariots of the Gods. Eric von Dyneken, yes, the first guy who made this really popular horrible book. This notion <laughs> that ancient religion, ancient religious man, was ignorant. And all of our religious notions of the gods come from the fact that because he was ignorant, we were actually visited by ancient astronauts from other planets <laughs> thousands of years ago. And because man was so ignorant, he, th he thought they were gods, but they were really just advanced aliens. Well, this, <laughs> what was so funny is this, this was out in the 60, late 60s and early 70s, and it was goofy and ridiculous. Now, obviously, you know, they, they sold a lot of popular books, but scientists and stuff didn't believe it. Sure. Now... 40 years later, scientists and archaeologists, all these scientists are believing in this same goofiness. Right. Yeah. Maybe religion comes from, and it's in all the movies, you know, Prometheus. Right. It's in all the right. movies. Any movies about <laughs> aliens, it's basically, oh, yeah, they, they were where we got our religious from. So right. basically, it is a Christ substitute religion is what it is. Yeah. They're mm -hmm. substituting for God, they're substituting another created thing that they can worship to give them meaning because we need something higher than ourselves to get meaning from, and they don't want to follow the true God. So man creates these mythologies, and ancient sure. aliens is the latest scientific version of that religious mythology. And so here's what I do is they subvert they try to subvert us, so I subvert them right back. <laughs> I use all the, you know, a lot of data that, that they refer to about ancient gods and stuff. I use the same material, the same mythologies, but I explain and show how they're actually of heavenly origin, a spiritual reality, right. not of a terrestrial, a, a terrestrial origins. So, um, yeah, now I don't deal with it directly because obviously in the ancient world— there's, if I don't believe in ancient astronauts, there's not going to be ancient astronauts. But I use all the same resources, that, let's put it that way, all the same sources that the ancient aliens use, I use, but I explain them in the context of spiritual reality, not a terrestrial, you know, uh, uh, pseudo-scientific reality. Right. That's good. Well, that's pretty awesome. Wow. So, and, and last thing I wanted to ask you about is uh, there's all kinds of flood theories out there. And... Uh, you know, the canopy theory, there's the hydroplate yeah. theory. Yeah. Um, I'm kind of a fan of the hydroplate theory myself. Uh, mm -hmm. But I, as I was reading your novel, I'm not getting a clear theory from it yet. And so I was kind of wondering where you, you kind of lean on that, or are you just kind uh, of yeah. incorporating them all? Or 
Yeah, no, that's a good that's a good question too. I look, I I used to be totally into the whole uh, young Earth creationism and stuff like that, and I, I've since changed a lot of my views on that, and and so therefore I believed in the uh, canopy theory and uh, you know Henry Morris and all those guys. I loved them. I I still you know I still love creationists and stuff. I'm not so much in that camp, and so that's why and you know dinosaurs and all that stuff. So I don't, I, I don't, that's why they don't show up in, in my novels. Cause I'm not really in that camp. Um, yeah. But on the other hand though, uh, like I said, I wrote the flood in such a way that anybody's whatever theory you believe you're going to love it. I mean, global theory, <laughs> local theory, it doesn't matter. It's, it, it, it fits any theory in that sense, you know, but, awesome. but in, in my, in my approach, I don't, I don't deal, I don't really deal with was the world scientifically different at that time in terms of the atmosphere and all that kind of stuff? I, I just, I just sort of accept it. You know, again, some people, I think some people have written novels where they do include that. And, and, it, and, and the reason why I don't is because I, I think it would be a tangent for me. I'm focusing so much on this, you know, watcher paradigm that I just felt like if I go more into all that other stuff, it takes me away from what's more important for my story. Right. And my particular story is, is, is that the watcher yeah. paradigm. Right. So, yeah. So that's kind of, so, cool. you know, that's the angle that I take. Wow. Well, awesome. Brian. Well, thank you for being on the show today. Yeah. Um, I, it, you're our first interview, really. <laughs> Man, it was fun though. It's such a such a great book. I can't wait to get out there and read it. I haven't read it yet, but I'm like, <laughs> I'm chomping at the bit to uh, start on your first book and get through that series, dude. It sounds awesome. You know, we, we never talked about David and the Giants and David. Oh, yeah. oh that's true. We that. <laughs> yeah. My, my next novel that's coming out is actually David Ascendant, and uh, it's it's coming out. You can pre-order it right now on Amazon, but it's coming out in November. And, um, you know, maybe next time or we yeah. can do an addendum or something like that. But uh, that's another thing where people don't realize that there's Goliath was not the only giant that was after David. There that's was right. actually five other right. giants after right. him. So what's that about? Right? Yeah. That, and, and that was I think I was telling you this before. That's kind of the study that got me into studying giants mm-hmm. was the fact when I discovered, well, wait a second. Goliath had brothers. Yeah, <laughs> you know what's this all about? And so, yeah, I'd love to have you back on and and talk about it uh, some more. Yeah, sure. Uh, maybe we'll give Jeremiah a chance to it. start reading it, and <laughs> and I can get through a little bit more through the series, and we'll have more to talk about. So. Hey, if, if so, if anybody wants to uh, check more out on it, uh, go to the website, uh, which has tons of free cool stuff on it. It's called Chronicles of the Nephilim dot com. And if you can't spell that out, you can go to noahprimeval.com. That'll take you basically there. And basically, I have a bunch of cool artwork. I have pictures of characters from the novels. I have synopses. I have free articles about biblical material. Awesome. I have uh, little um, book trailers and, and author explanation videos, all kinds of cool stuff. And uh, so you can find out more about it there. And then from there, you can go buy the books. Yeah, awesome. Wow. Well, we will definitely include those links in our show notes. Right. And uh, and we've we've already posted on Facebook a link to your website. So uh, yeah, right. should be good, man. Well, thanks a bunch, Brian, for being here and uh, and letting us uh, interview you and and giving your insight on on some stuff. And we definitely want you to go over and and check out that uh check out that website and get the book. Yeah, and check yeah. it out, man. So, so. all right. Nice. Well, I think that's gonna wrap it up for the day. Uh, Jeremiah, thanks for being here. Brian, thanks for being here. Thanks, Thanks for having me. All right, you guys have a great day and God bless you. 
This has been the Theonauts Podcast. Call us with your questions or comments at 972-885-7270. That's 972-885-7270. We'd love to hear from you. You are tuned in to the GCT Network. This is your Great Commission Transmission at GCTNetwork.com.